Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening to you all. Uh, my name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. And you're all very welcome to our signature event, which is the annual Trinity Long Room Hub Humanities Horizons Lecture. And in this series, we invite distinguished scholars from our field to address the state of play in our disciplines, but also to reflect a little bit on the wider world contexts of the research that we do in the arts and humanities. Uh, and our previous speakers have included Andrew Thompson, uh, professor of uh, imperial and global history at Oxford, who discussed humanities in the age of the technocene, Anthea Butler from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, who talked on mythologies around Irish slaves in America, and Homi Baba, who talked to us on migration and mortality. Uh, and this is a, a part of a very distinguished list, and you can follow some of those talks if you're interested on the Trinity Long Room Hub website link. This evening uh, gives me real pleasure because we have our first in-person uh, Humanities Horizons lecture since the pandemic. And I'm delighted that we have with us, I think, exactly the right speaker at exactly the right time uh, with exactly the right topic, Lindsay Stonebridge, who is Interdisciplinary Professor of Humanities and Human Rights at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, I first started reading Lindsay's work, I'd say well over 15 years ago, and I picked up her 2007 study of anxiety in uh, British wartime culture and knew I was reading a critic with uh, rare insight and ability. And over the next few years, I watched and learned as she retuned her research in many different publications to address the intersection of literature with uh, law, migration, statelessness, and human rights. She did this in her award-winning 2011 publication, uh, The Judicial Imagination, Writing After Nuremberg, which looked at literature and legality. And what grew in turn from that book was her concern with representation, uh, and, and representation in both imaginative and legal terms, uh, of those left outside the state, the displaced, the migrants, the refugees. And her 2018 book, Placeless People, Writing, Rights and Refugees, tracks what the philosopher Hannah Arendt saw as the scandal of statelessness. Uh, and also considers the literary negotiation of displacement and exile, first of all through Arendt herself, but also through a range of writers, George Orwell, Simone Weil, Dorothy Thompson, uh, and uh, in a really superb chapter, Samuel Beckett, who so brilliantly reimagined the, the expelled in the wake of his wartime experiences in the ruined French town of Saint-Lô. In 2020, Lindsay pursued this subject again in a really provocative essay collection, Writing and Writing, Literature in the Age of Human Rights. And this is a series of contemporary case studies that combine to provide a valiant defense of the humanities and to resist, I think, the complacency uh, of crisis. Teachers of the humanities, she writes in this book, 
have grown used to hearing that their subjects aren't doing so well over the past 10 years. One response is to point out that humanity isn't doing that great just now either, and to suggest that these two developments might be related. In her books, her essays, her journalism and broadcasts, Lindsay Stonebridge has shown how literature and the humanities are co-creators in the articulation of human rights, not in the form of a, a sentimental education, but as robust resources for thinking through the human condition. And a defining thread, as you'll have noticed throughout her work, is the philosopher and political theorist Hannah Arendt. Uh, and this is the subject, uh, finally, of her forthcoming book, um, We Are Free to Change the World, Hannah Arendt's Lessons in Love and Disobedience. It's going to be published by Jonathan Cape in 2024, and, and we're very much looking forward to it. Uh, and it's with Hannah Arendt in mind that Lindsay comes to the subject of this evening's talk, Totalitarianism and the Humanities. The talk's going to be for about 45 to 50 minutes, uh, and then we'll open to the audience for questions, thoughts, and comments. So please do be ready with those. But for now, I invite you all to turn off your phones, to sit back, and to join me in warmly welcoming back to Dublin and back to Trinity this year's Humanities Horizons lecturer, Lindsay Stonebridge. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. Um, Eve was just telling me that David Bedell was here last week and people couldn't hear him. And he has a great broadcasting projection voice. I do not. So if I walk away from the mic or you can't hear me, just wave. I will wave back and try and adjust. Um, thank you, Eve Hatton. And thank you to the staff and the students and fellows at the Hub for making me feel so welcome over the last couple of days. I do feel like I've come home. Um, it's also conventional to say that you're honoured to be invited to an institution so special and so prestigious as the Trinity Long Room Hub. I am deeply honoured, but I also want to say that I'm truly grateful and actually very humbled to be able to talk to this audience in Dublin at this particular time about the enduring power of both the creative and the political imagination. As Eve just said, I spent the last four years working on a critical biography of the political theorist Hannah Arendt. And my talk tonight brings together two questions that arose whilst I was writing that book. One about totalitarianism, one about the humanities. How can we think about the now and the then of dark political times? The uncomfortable familiarities between what Arendt described from the 20th century, from her, her times, that was unfolding about me as I wrote this book, seemed to crystallize around that very big word, totalitarianism. I wondered how to have a conversation with Arendt's past without either using false analogies between the past and the present, or buying into a kind of doom-laden narrative. It's all fascism again. We are indeed doomed. That's a totalitarian bit. But also, as he said, I was trained as a literary critic and theorist, not as a political theorist. 
And one of the things that I got very absorbed in as I was writing a book on Arendt, who was, of course, a modernist writer in her own way too, was how do the creative and the political imaginations work together? How do the creative and the political imaginations work together? That's the humanities bit. Okay, this is a four-part talk, and I'll say every time I'm going into a different part, so when you get to part four, you can start thinking about crisps and wine, and you know it's all over, nearly. Okay. Those familiar with Anna Burns' 2018 Booker Prize-winning novel, The Milkman, which is probably many of you in this room, if not most of you in this room, will remember that nothing upsets the equilibrium of a totalitarian culture quite like a woman reading in public. Burns' narrator, 18-year-old middle sister, likes to read as she walks, nose down, mostly in 19th century novels, but the 18th century draws her too, as do Marlowe and Chaucer. In the closed community of Catholic Belfast in the 1970s, it's a habit that makes her dangerously visible. It's the way you do it, explains her longest friends. Reading books, whole books, taking notes, your discourses, your lucubrations. It's disturbing, it's deviant. Wait, middle sister protests, speaking for us all. It's fine to carry Semtex around, but not okay for me to read Jane Eyre in public. Semtex isn't unusual, her friend responds. It's not not to be expected. It's not incapable of being mentally grasped, of being understood, even if most people don't carry it. It fits in more than your dangerous reading while walking fits in. Quote, there are no dangerous thoughts. Thinking itself is dangerous, Hannah Arendt wrote, in 1958, just 10 years before the dark energies of the Troubles surfaced, and 25 years after she had escaped Nazi Europe. How much more dangerous, then, Anna Burns responds from the 21st century than for a woman thinking, walking, and reading. As a young woman, Burns herself walked and read, as did I, and, as I suspect, by the look of some of you, quite a few of you did here, too. <coughs> Reading while walking was a way of staying in your book, which almost meant remaining invisible to the world. Escapism, to a point. For as any bookish 18-year-old knows, reading while walking is also a bit of a pose, a statement, an act of defiance. Being seen as a reader is part of what protects your mind from outside interference. Look, I am reading. Wherever my mind is, it's not here on the pavement responding to your gaze. It's not yours. I am not yours. In a totalitarian enclave, those are Burns's words, parading your commitment to books and your inner life in the streets like this is about as reckless as it gets. Even so, I want to say, it remains a sign of hope. This was living otherwise, middle sister explains, underneath the trauma and darkness a normality trying to happen. Reading and thinking in public is also a way of describing some of the work we do in humanities. A lot of the time we read and think alone, but at key moments we take our reading and thinking for a walk, to a university seminar, a public lecture, a policy briefing, a school classroom, or to a picnic when you tumble into conversation with a new friend who happens, like you, 
to have just read Louise Kennedy's Trespasses, or on the train when you smile encouragingly at the young man pursing his lips over the human condition. I don't recommend you do this, actually, because it freaks them out a bit. <laughs> In this evening, it's talk, I want to take very seriously the proposition at the heart of both Anna Burns's novel and Hannah Arendt's work that there is something importantly anti-totalitarian about public reading and thinking. I take my understanding of totalitarianism, that big oversized word describing a big oversized state, from Arendt, who fled Berlin in 1933, aged just 27, having been caught by a young officer from the Gestapo researching anti-Semitic material in the Prussian state archives. Luckily for us here this evening, Arendt charmed her captor, who was new to his role, and this being the lawless period just after the Reichstag flag fires, was not quite sure exactly what crime had been broken by this bookish young woman with a disarmingly direct gaze. He contrived to set her free, and Arendt spent the next 17 years as a refugee in Paris, and then via a detention camp in New York, combing more archives, reading more books, to eventually publish the first major study of the 20th century's newest and most outrageous political phenomenon, 1951, the origins of totalitarianism. But I also take my understanding of totalitarianism from Anna Burns. To be honest, I hadn't noticed the the word totalitarian was in The Milkman until I read a reference to the novel in a 2020 study of the concept by the distinguished American historian of Italian fascism, David D. Roberts. But there is a pattern in the policing of the category of totalitarianism. And writing my biography of Arendt, I lost count of the number of times that the origins of totalitarianism had to be corrected, superseded, and generally put back in its place by male commentators and scholars, but was rarely actually read with very much close attention. Fair enough, it's a difficult book and it's not perfectly written. But it was hard not to detect a whiff of misogyny when it comes to the policing of the category of totalitarianism. I was joking with Eve last night that I should really call call my talk what women are really talking about when they talk about totalitarianism (laughs) and why some men really don't like it. (laughs) Don't get me started on Slavoj Zizek, because then I (laughs) can And so it continues. The political intrusion into private life portrayed in The Milkman Robert says, might plausibly be totalitarian. He's my straw man. But there's no intent to dominate it presented, no real system of repression analysed in the novel, and the suffocating atmosphere conveyed in its pages is really just a byproduct of the political struggle. Just the darkness, then. As though atmosphere in novels, one of those things incapable of being mentally grasped, unlike Semtex intents and systems, were not part of the point. A category fail on the creative writer's part. Well, so what? Who cares if the categories of political history do not align with the mental, perceptual, and sensual worlds evoked in, among other creative medium, novels? Well, I do. And so, as it happens, did Hannah Arendt, who saw totalitarianism not just as a terrifying new form of absolutist government, but above all else, as an attack on human experience itself, as an attack on human experience itself. An attack, that is, on the common senses, on what seems real to us, most self-evident, on that precious normality trying to happen. 
George Orwell, a writer whom Arendt admired and with whom she shared much, although they never met, understood this about totalitarianism too, which is perhaps why he chose to write about it in a novel. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that categories of political thought don't matter. I'm actually saying that they do, and particularly if we want to understand where and how the political darkness is falling in our own times, which is, of course, different, is very different from how it started to fall 100 years ago, but no less present for that. The writer who most defends Roberts for their deviant use of totalitarianism is not a fiction writer, but the American-Russian journalist and dissident Masha Gessen, whose book, The Future of History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, was first published seven months before the Milkman in October 2017. A contemporary epic, if you haven't read this book, I really do warmly recommend it, and now, of course, deeply present. The book traces the real lives of four contemporary Russians from the 1980s through to the present, from Glasnost to Putin. Gessen, who is non-binary, had been reporting on Russian politics since 1991 and left the country permanently in 2013, following the increase of political and physical attacks against LGBTQ plus people. Roberts deplores their evocation of totalitarianism in this context as unthinking and casual, and casual, unthinking and casual. I don't think there's anything casual and certainly not unthinking about either Burns or Gesson's use of the word totalitarianism. I think both writers' use of the word is quite deliberate, and since we're talking about history here, quite deliberately anachronistic. Let's just think a bit about the context between the writing of these two books. The Euromaidan protests in Ukraine began in the autumn of 2013, swiftly followed by Russia's invasion of Crimea in the next year. 2016 saw Brexit swiftly followed by the election of Donald Trump, each putting the Good Friday Agreement in peril. As both books went to press in 2017, it was evident to all but the most sheltered that dark times were upon us again. Totalitarianism, a word for the 20th century, was meant to sound odd at the end of the close of the second decade of the 21st, to jar, to feel a bit wrong, excessive, not to fit in. Bones and Gesson were not using totalitarianism as a concept, but as a signal, a warning. Of what? A general menace, yes, to be sure. A contracting of public spaces for debate and dissent. An authoritarian and anti-democratic turn, an unease had crept in, almost unnoticed, and now was coating not only major political events, but everyday life. Arendt described how the populist authoritarians of her time liked to make capital out of incohate, incohate hate. Now we felt it too. Some vented without inhibition, others self-censored. Again, but differently this time, the bile fell and falls, many on women and minorities. If there's one characteristic that unites ideologies that can plausibly be called totalitarian today, I'm saying ideologies, not systems or governments, I think it is a theatrically murderous and violent misogyny and homophobia. This differs, I think, from the gender conservatism of fascism or the pronatalism of nationalism by dint of its extreme violence. Think of Iran and Afghanistan. Think of the orgiastic destruction of Roe versus Wade in the United States. And of the fact in February this year, it was reported that violence against LGBTQ plus people in Europe and Central Asia has reached its highest in a decade. Quote, 
It so happened that in the setup of the time in each of those totalitarian-run enclaves, it was the male paramilitaries who more than anyone ruled over the areas with the final say, writes Burns in The Milkman, in one of actually only three mentions of totalitarianism in her book. She was evoking the 70s, but she was also talking about the present. Not for nothing did the feminist critic Jacqueline Rose, who was on the Booker um, Prize Committee the year Burns won, describe the novel as the first for the Me Too generation. Not for nothing either, surely, is the novel that Middle Sister reads most frequently in the streets, Walter Scott's Ivanhoe. Many of us will remember that novel, at least in its abridged versions, because it was endlessly abridged in the, in the 70s, for its nights and its jousting. It is, of course, also a story about how the Norman occupiers and the Anglo-Saxons eventually came together to construct a mythology of English nationhood. I remember the novel, as I suspect as Anna Burns, for the glamorous Rebecca, the unapologetically clever Jewish woman who refuses to announce her faith for the new nation and in the end washes her hands of men, horses, chivalry and flags and leaves for Spain, the beaches and a gentler identity politics. Here's another proposition then. You don't escape the streets when you walk around them with your nose in the novel. Some books make the outlines of the history you live in bolder, it's dangerous to you sharper, and maybe here's that hope again, it's alternatives more lucid. Second part. When Hannah Arendt said that totalitarianism aimed to destroy human experience, she meant that as a political system it recognised no boundaries. The marching, the grim uniformity, the mass mobilising, the grey togethering was not about discipline so much, but about garnering an energy, a momentum. Yes, totalitarianism was about control, but more fundamentally, it was about surrendering control to an idea, a fiction, a dream in which reality itself could be reshaped in the image of man. It was a compelling fiction for millions in Euro of Europe in the 20th century, she said, but because by the beginning of the century, other stories, stories about liberal democracy, bourgeois prosperity, political progress, reasoned internationalism, were proving, to put it mildly, wanting. Economic progress had turned out also to involve uprooting people from their families, classes and communities. Democracy increasingly seemed to serve only social and political elites. Then came the First World War, revolution, massive refugee crisis, more economic turmoil and devastating unemployment. Quote, the masses escape from reality, Arendt observed in a sentence I often think could have been written yesterday is a verdict against the world in which they are forced to live and in which they cannot exist. The masses escape from reality um, is a verdict against the world in which they are forced to live and which they cannot exist. But the politics of totalitarianism offered as an alternative was in reality no politics at all. For Hannah Arendt, totalitarianism was not actually a political concept but a historical phenomenon that aimed to destroy politics itself and with it many of the other categories and concepts which once made sense of the world. It wasn't just, she said, that its ideologies, racism for the Nazis, class struggle for the Stalinist, oppressed the messy reality of human experience, nor just that the endless creation of enemies of the people demanding an exhausting repetition of lies and outrageous inventions. By making everything political, totalitarianism threatened what to her was most precious of all, the very human promise of politics. Hannah Arendt never stopped believing that a politics of human plurality, 
of respect for difference and debate, of freedom and mutual dignity might be possible. And this is why I keep on arguing that we need to be reading her again today. But for such a politics to have a hope of working, she also said, the spaces between us need to be protected. This is why we have laws, institutions, boundaries, some rules to keep us free to move about, books in front of our noses, to say thank you but not now please I'm busy. This is what totalitarianism smashed. Totalitarian systems only had one law. They were, quite literally, a law unto themselves. The ultimate aim, Arendt said, was the elimination of human spontaneity itself. And as Kant first taught, without the capacity to act spontaneously, uh, spontaneously, we are deprived of the right to respond to one another, to events, or to injustice. Freedom and dignity go out of the window. In one of the most provocative arguments in the origins of totalitarianism, Arendt says that the Nazi extermination camps, like the Soviet gulags, were experimental laboratories for a vision of society as a whole. Quote, For what purposes do the gas chambers exist? She reports French survivor and writer David Rosset asking in Auschwitz. For what reason were you born, was the answer. Totalitarianism's most outrageous characteristic feature was its sheer senselessness. Today's totalitarian-minded political opportunists know better than to advocate concentration camps as a solution to social ills. Although detention centres and education camps have had a revival, some English politicians lately again proving inventive with their choice of venue, the Russians and Chinese unapologetically retro about forced re-education. Yet the most chilling and resonant chapter of Arendt's book to read today is not about the camps, but about what happens outside of them. In 1949, Arendt returned to Germany for the first time since she'd left in 1933. It was a devastating experience, not least because of the level of denial she encountered. The war was over, but the attack on human understanding and experience was not. People kept on asking her where she'd been, as though she'd merely been displaced by an unfortunate war of which they too, she was told repeatedly, were the victims. Common sense had not reappeared with the disappearance of Nazi totalitarianism. Normality was not yet trying to happen. The denial was everywhere. She took to introducing herself to strangers as Jewish. Hello, my name is Hannah and I'm a Jew. To try and force a bit of reality back in. Blankness. On her return to the United States, she wrote an essay called Ideology and Terror. But the terror she describes in what is now that, her book's final chapter is not just one of the 3 a.m. knock at the door, the corpses of family pets at the front gate, or the sound of marching boots. It's the more intimate terror of living in a society that has completely abolished its borders. Totalitarian societies, she wrote, substitute, quote, the boundaries and channels of communication between people with a band of iron which holds them together so tightly it is as though their plurality had disappeared into one man of gigantic proportions. It's hard enough for decent men to live in this one man, let alone women and other deviants, noses in books or otherwise conspicuous. But in reality, this one man's dimensions were illusory, and totalitarianism's great one man was actually, she said, made up of millions of desperately, hopelessly isolated persons. It's hard not to think of Donald Trump, I think, at this point. It's loneliness, Arendt argues, in one of the most heartbreaking contributions to modern political theory that makes us susceptible 
to the lies, myths, the conspiracy theories, and the absolutism of totalitarian thinking. This is no common loneliness, she says, such as that which afflicts the old and the sick, but the aching, profoundly fearful loneliness of being in a group in which you cannot be sure that somebody does not want to hurt you. The lonely crowd, as her friend David Reisman called it, the terrifying alienation of the school playground. What began to scare Hannah Arendt in the 1950s was a sense that loneliness was not just confined to actual totalitarian regimes, but was becoming endemic in industrial and consumer societies as well. Something, she said, had slithered into our politics in the 20th century. Something bigger than individual governments, despots and mass murderers. When Vaclav Havel wrote about post-totalitarianism in his sublimely courageous 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerless, he similarly pointed out that while Czechoslovakia by that point was no longer dominated by the boisterous Bolshevism of the immediate post-war period, an awful existential impoverishment persisted, which he suspected, correctly I think, was by no means confined to Eastern Europe. Importantly for my argument this evening, Arendt distinguished this social loneliness from the very different experience of solitude. Left alone, we have the space and time to think, to run conversations in our head, with ourselves, but also with others, as when you read books, to experiment a little, to go visiting new places with your mind, to move in the imagination, to do the dangerous thinking without being either arrested or abandoned. The real threat of totalitarianism and its legacy for the future, she feared, was it might also kill off solitude, and with that, all hope. In other words, it's not just the big controlling state systems or the political aims of the authoritarians and the populists we have to fear, but precisely something harder to grasp mentally, and for that reason, more sinister, at least as sinister than more sinister. Quote, look at your face, middle sister's boyfriend says in The Milkman, it's as if your sense organs are disappearing, or as if they've already disappeared. The more her paramilitary stalker closes in, the less of Burns's brilliantly deviant narrator there is. But it's not just the man, nor just the cameras that flash from the hedges, nor the barbed wire and the soldiers, nor the women. In the, quote, intricately coiled, overly secretive, hyper-gossipy, puritanical, yet indecent, totalitarian district of the milkman, close quote, there can be no solitude. Middle sister stops reading and walking. My feelings stopped expressing, she said. Then they stopped existing. I, too, came to find me inaccessible. My inner world had gone away. Part three. Hannah Rent was 45 by the time she had finished Origins of Totalitarianism. And when it was first published, it played a kind of a minor celebrity. But she'd always been an outsider. The young Jewish girl in Konigsberg who liked reading, above all else, especially Kant and Schopenhauer, and who would often lose herself in thought in the streets. I'm absolutely certain that Hannah Arendt read and walked at the same time. A refugee and stateless person for over 17 years, she never stopped, as she once put it, describing the domain of political life from the outside looking in. Her totalitarianism book made her an academic celebrity in the US. She began to get grants, invitations to speak and to teach. And in 1955, she went to San Francisco for a semester at the University of California at Berkeley, 
where she taught an introductory course on contemporary political issues. At this point in my talk, I hope that this won't surprise you too much, but when I first dug out the syllabus uh, for this course from the archives, it certainly surprised and delighted me to discover that what Hannah Arendt set our undergraduates to read on this course were novels, plays, first-hand historical testimonies, whole books, taking notes, the whole humanities shebangs, the discourses and the lucubrations. Her students read Faulkner and Hemingway and Ernest Jünger to get a sense of the desperation of the First World War and the bitter years that followed. Marot and Brecht schooled them in revolution. The Polish, um, the Polish dissident, Szefros Miawosz and, and David Gousset, plunged them into the unbelievable nightmare of totalitarianism. And of course, there was George Orwell in 1984, right on the middle of the syllabus. Sartan Camus brought them up to date. This was a course called Political Science 111. It says so on the top. And I show this to my political science colleagues. They're either really jealous or appalled, depending on what kind of political scientists they are. <laughs> but what Anna Arendt wanted most for her students in 1955 was to immerse themselves in the human experience of the past 30 years, to reclaim it back. Hers was an explicit and deliberate anti-totalitarian teaching, and it began with novels, biographies, and what we would today call creative non-fiction. The experiences you're going to read about, she told her sunny Californian students in their first class together in the spring of 1955, are nothing remotely like your own, although a bit like her own, she admitted, in her very thick German accent behind her trademark mask of cigarette smoke. But I don't want you to empathise, she added, although the experiences described are often horrible and deserving of great sympathy. I want you to understand. Imagination, she told them, and I'm quoting here directly from her teaching notes from the archive, imagination is the prerequisite of understanding. You should imagine how the world looks like from the point of view from where these people are located. The stakes of this imagining could not be higher. She says, the assumption is it's the common world of all of us, and that, what is, that is what is between you and this other location, she explained. Arendt was using her text to put a common world back on the table. Actually, the common world was the table. She did not want her students to empathise because she wanted them to see what separates human experiences as well as what we have in common, what is different as well as what is the same. It's the common world of all of us, she says, I'm quoting again, what is between you and this other location, she said, like the table, at this point I always imagine her, like the table between us that separates and binds you to him at the same time. That, she concluded, the table between us is the meaning of the one world. The table we sit around discussing books, listening, sharing, disagreeing. It was Kant's enlarged mentality that Hannah Arendt was bringing with her to California from Konigsberg, now of course renamed Kaliningrad in 1946 when the Soviet army routed the Nazis. The ability to represent the experience of the others in one's mind, even though we have not actually perceived that experience for herself, ourselves. This is how opinions get formed, by thinking together, and is why Hannah Arendt believed that the thing that connected art and politics was that in the end, both belonged to the public world. Understanding and judgment, these were what mattered, in aesthetics and in the public sphere, in the classroom and in politics, in novels and in the streets. 
Time and time again, Arendt would insist that totalitarianism had defied traditional forms of comprehension. How do you make sense of the camps without somehow conceding that they might actually make sense? What kind of thinking is that, she often asked. You need a different kind of imagination to comprehend the incomprehensible. Her answer to the thought-defying evil, as she called it, of totalitarian thinking was not to erect more categories, but to advocate more understanding, more thinking, in the hope that we can create new modes of moral and political judgment. Hers was not a straightforward return to political reason, as we often hear today, a return to political reason, but a call for a kind of emergency thinking, which may, in the end, be all we have. Quote, the manifestation of the wind of thought is not knowledge, she wrote in 1971. It is the ability to tell right from wrong, beautiful from ugly. And this indeed may prevent catastrophes, at least for myself, in the rare moments when the chips are down. The humanities were the training ground for this kind of emergency thinking. We circle back here to those things incapable of being mentally grasped, of being understood, which marks out Anna Burns's narrator and her deviant habit of reading in public in the Milkman. Another proposition. Perhaps taking a book into the streets and ostentatiously sticking your nose in it is one of the best things you can do when the chips are down. Maybe appearing not to care about what is going on around you is a way of caring very much indeed. Maybe perhaps the best thing the humanities can do right now to defeat current totalitarian thinking is to release a new cadre of annoyingly uncompliant bibliomaniacs out into the streets. Part four. Except this proposition doesn't quite work right now. As those of you who read in public knew, or did read in public, there's a studied nostalgia involved in deciding to take your book out with you into the streets. In an era of phones and tablets, security cameras and digital surveillance is a decidedly vintage type of behaviour. Neither of the smoke-filled seminar rooms of Berkeley available to us now for better in the round, I think, but also possibly a little bit for the worse. Looking back, I think now that perhaps Hannah Arendt had only scratched the surface of the stakes involved in the struggle between the imagination and totalitarianism, I also do believe that now we're seeing something like the resurfacing of a menace that's probably been there all along, a sense of suffocation so brilliantly conveyed in Burns's novel that comes with the abandonment of a common sense of shared reality and indeed of a common sensuality. And in the meantime, our understanding of totalitarian thinking appears to contract it, leaving us unprepared for the current assaults on our common senses. Undoing totalitarianism in the deliberately anachronistic and capacious sense of the word of it I've been using tonight, I think remains the work of the humanities. Of that, I am quite sure. But the question many of us are grappling with today, of course, is what form the humanities now needs to take. I'm borrowing Undoing here from Pramesh Lalu's important new book, Undoing Apartheid, which we'll be celebrating here tomorrow, and from which I've learnt an awful lot, and which argues brilliantly for an unapologetically creative and aesthetic education as a prerequisite for political freedom in South Africa. I hear Hannah Arendt in this powerful affirmation of the connection between aesthetics and political freedom. But now starting from exactly the, right, the, the, the historical and creative point with which Arendt's thinking 
for a variety of reasons, could not go. There were no African novels on Arendt's 1955 syllabus. As late as 1970, she would describe African literature as non-existent. But Arendt was in no doubt that racism, and specifically what she called race imperialism, were at the origins of totalitarianism. If you want to understand how totalitarianism came to almost destroy Europe, she argued, look first to French and Russian imperialism. And look especially, she said, to the British in India and Africa. The middle section of origins of totalitarianism is called imperialism. Um, only the last section is called totalitarianism. And originally, I read, wanted to call her book Anti-Semitism, Racism and Imperialism. And she kept calling it various versions of that. And it was only her publisher, the brilliant William um, Yovanovitch, who came up with the origins of totalitarianism. Because he intuited quite correctly that for American audience, if you called it racism, anti-Semitism, that might be not so attractive to Americans because racism, anti-Semitism were endemic in America in the 1950s. But totalitarianism sounded something you know, exotically European. But the whole point of our argument, if you read the book carefully, is it begins with imperialism, it begins with racism. Um, so uh, the book has been distorted by the way we've, we've approached it. Um, so, look, she said, look to French imperialism, look to the British. Her, her, her chapter on imperialism and the British, by the way, is hilariously funny as well, for reasons you can guess. But as she was writing, she was writing in 1948, this wasn't even history. Even as she wrote, the southern states of America, which she refused to visit on principle, were doubling down on Jim Crow policies. And at the same time, the lethal architecture of apartheid in South Africa was being moved into place. If I had the chance to update Arendt's Political Science 110 from her time to our present, this is where I would begin, in 1948, with apartheid, and with a historical point when race imperialism became both an adjunct to European forms of totalitarianism, and, some of us might claim, especially those of us who like to stretch a category, its most newest articulation. I would next set my students to read James Baldwin, Arendt herself, and the environmentalist Rachel Carson together for the 60s part of my syllabus. Each of these writers, in their own way, insisted on the reality of a common-sense reality of the world that they wanted to reclaim from an ongoing politics of racism and denialism. This isn't actually fanciful. Within just a few months, between 1962 and 1963, the New Yorker under William Sean published Carson's great environmental um, um, uh, text, The Silent Spring, Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, and then Arendt Zeichmann in Jerusalem. They literally came out within six months of each, each other. If you look at the archive, um, lots of people are writing to William Sean going, what's going on? This is incredible. You know, this is like, um, this is a, the, the, the quality of the thinking. And the archive's also full of people going, so you get rid of these mad feminist Jews and black people, because this is awful. That's what, not what the New Yorker should be about. That would be the 60s. The 1970s, an era of violent civil war and revolution, the turn of the century, a new age of confidence and optimism, all too brief. I'm not too sure how I would invite the students of the future to look at the world from the perspective of our immediately present moment. Although I'd like to note that when a member of Pussy Riot fled house arrest from Russia last year, she did so with a copy of The Origins of Totalitarianism in her backpack, along with her pet rat. Masha Gessen would be on my syllabus, and so too, of course, would be the milkman, and Anna Burns' brilliant, exuberant, 
and yes, hopeful testament to the enduring power of art and literature to rile and defy totalitarian thinking. The last words of this talk could only really go to middle sister. Quote, just because I'm outnumbered in my reading while walking, I said, doesn't mean I'm wrong. Thank you.